in all but the simplest organizations, team level scrum is, is wholly insufficient to run an agile enterprise, right? It just is, right? I mean, you could have a thousand scrum teams. You could have everybody in the organization doing scrum. Yeah. But if you don't put the orchestration layers on top of it to do some sort of dependency management, look ahead, you don't put some sort of process in place to deal with that prioritization and get that right. whole stack in the organization in alignment, you're going to continue to have these problems. Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Soundouts. Today, I'm here with Mike Kottmeyer. Mike, thanks for making time this afternoon. Hey, Dave, thanks for having me, as always. On this <laughs> we're gonna, yeah, we're going to talk all about misconceptions about Agile. Um, yeah. And things people think are true that are often the opposite of what is true. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so we're doing, a, we're doing a little content run with the marketing team this week. There was some discussion going on on LinkedIn or something around common misconceptions around Agile transformation. So we, we're putting together, put together a blog post and uh, a few things. So I'm looking forward to exploring this topic with you. I'm, I am too, because I'm going to start yeah. out with something that happened to me this morning. So I had a call cool. with a, somebody who, who wanted to know about training and we started to talk about um, what they, the situation they were facing and they want scrum training for all their yeah. teams so that when their team begins work and they do all the upfront planning, they stop making mistakes with their plans. And yeah. that's what Scrum's going to fix. And I was like, well, actually, Scrum's not going to fix that. I mean, you could use it to come up with a better onboarding process. But yeah. um, I started to explain it all. And and at the end, the person was very kind and listened to me. He said, no, no, I just I need Scrum <coughs> training so everyone works the same way and we have a good upfront plan. So what do you think? What do you think they're underlying? Why do you think when somebody asks you that question, why do you think why do you, what do you think they think Scrum's going to do for them? That they're existing. I think there's a couple things. I think that, yeah. that whatever they're doing now doesn't work. It's probably yeah. rooted in waterfall and they're trying to reduce yeah. risk. And yeah. so what I said was this process could help you come up with a better approach to how you're working. Like it could either produce product or produce a better system internally, but it's not going to make upfront planning work because that planning happens when people know is the least they're ever going to know. Those plans are always going to be wrong. Yeah. So, so it's fascinating, right? So, so I know I'm, I'm sharing this with you and it's something that, you know, cause you, you work in our system, but you know, we have this model we call the leading agile compass or the four quadrants. And so I talk about the idea of, you know, on the horizontal axis, we have predictability on one side, adaptability on the other, on the vertical axis, we have this idea of emergence, like requirements, we're going to figure them out as we go. And um, convergence, which is like, yeah, I think I have a pretty good idea of my requirements. And so that implies kind of four states. And in the upper left quadrant, we have predictive um, emergent, right, where we're trying to make and meet commitments, but stuff's changing. In the lower left quadrant, we have predictive convergence, which is where plan-driven waterfall tends to live. Mm -hmm. um, lower right, we have adaptive convergence, which is basically where I tend to put agile. Because um, you can forward plan in Agile, but, uh, but it gives you the way we do requirements, the way we build software incrementally and iteratively, it gives you the opportunity to shift on sprint boundaries or release boundaries mm -hmm. or something like that. So you have, the, you, have the, you have theoretically the opportunity to change when you learn new stuff. Yeah. And then the upper right quadrant is what we call adaptive emergent. And it's like the home of like lean startup where we're going to yeah. use Agile to explore a market and to try to figure out what's going on. So here's the interesting thing to your point. In the lower left quadrant, 
in an early stage transformation where you haven't fundamentally changed the governance mechanisms, you haven't fundamentally changed how um, all the things around the Agile teams operate, um, a lot of times what we'll find is like at the, at the top tier, you know, kind of like the portfolio investment tier, like having a 12 to 18 month roadmap is maybe not <laughs> agile, but it's not unreasonable. Bear with me, bear with me. Don't laugh yet. Don't laugh, I, right? You don't know why I'm, I'm laughing. I'm going to 18 month roadmap because I'm going to make a point here that I think is, is essential. Yeah. Um, in like the middle tier, I tend to think about a three to six month release plan. Mm-hmm. And at the lowest tier, like kind of a scrum execution level, I tend to think about teams that have, you know, delivering every sprint, stable velocity, have three to four sprints ready, backlog, that kind of a thing. Right. And so, and so in that lower left quadrant, like one of the big things that, that people are trying to solve with Agile mm-hmm. um, is the idea of being more predictable. Right. Okay. But, but. What what they miss is that that predictability comes from producing working tests of software every two weeks, right? Right, establishing stable velocity against the known backlog, and making sure that we have stable throughput at the feature and epic level, right? So how do you make and meet commitments? How do you deliver against the roadmap? How do you deliver that classic year long waterfall plan? Yeah. To your point, when you say you know the least about it. Yeah. you possibly do at the beginning. So what the way I think about it is that when I'm laying out a roadmap, if that roadmap is going to be accurate, it's it's not an estimate anymore. It's a budget, right? And so the okay. features or the epics that are in that roadmap or the small projects that are in that roadmap or the phases of a project that are in that roadmap mm-hmm. are um, they're time and cost constrained. But what Agile gives us the ability to do is that it gives us the ability to decompose the work in such a way that we can always focus on like the MVP. Mm-hmm. We can always focus on getting things in the market fast. We can always focus on um, getting feedback. So yeah. not only are we focused on the smallest thing we can possibly do, but we're focused on getting feedback to make mm-hmm. sure that the things that we are building are most suitable to purpose. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so it's, so it's kind of like on this one, it's a little bit like the truth is in the middle um, it, it's like, it's like if you are going to deliver a roadmap in the right. presence of tremendous uncertainty, it's like, okay. you better be doing agile to do that. Right. Cause other than that, you're just guessing and hoping for the best. So there's, but, some, ways oh, doing agile. Oh. there's some ways of doing agile that can, can, that can serve that purpose. There's another element of this yeah. too. I think the emotional safety component that the executives have from the Gantt chart, which they know is wrong, but they can hold on to it and look at it and they can say, we have a plan. And, and I mean, yeah, it's a boat with a hole in it, but it's the only boat they have. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So they want to feel safe. Yeah. There's a, there's a joke that Dennis tells a lot. He goes, Hey, when we were doing our, when we were doing waterfall, you know, we didn't know we were late until we were 90% done. And now you're telling me we just started and we're already late. You know, what's what's the deal? Yeah, this oh. sucks. <laughs> so would you rather know you're late at the beginning or would you rather wait till you're 90% done and spend all the money to know that you're late, right? Yeah. You know, so that's the <clears throat> that's the kind of thing. You know, so it's like, you know, I think getting back to the to the point that you were trying to bring up, you know, that's actually one of the common misconceptions about Agile is that, is that you can you can install agile you can teach people how to do scrum right 
and you're going to get um, all these changed attributes out of it. So, you know, my guess is that that organization is probably functionally siloed. Mm-hmm. They're, they're projectized. They probably have project managers running around all over the place. And, 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 if, and if that's indeed the case, right. and let's say they run everybody through CSM training and everybody knows how to do Agile, like, what would they go do with that? It, they, they just get yeah. miserable because they can't do what they were taught to do. Well, well, yeah, right. So it's like, so it's like, you know, that's the thing that I think is interesting about Agile as opposed to, um, you know, traditional PMI, you know, project management. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I both grew up in that world. And when you take the PMBOK, what do, what do they say about the PMBOK? Like, generally applicable on most projects most of the time. Mm-hmm. And and the PMBOK doesn't make any assumptions or any assertions about how your teams are structured, what you measure and control, right. how you break down work, anything like that. And, you know, when, when I got involved in the PMI-ACP certification, that was one of the things that that I, I think we it was left out. Right. Was the was the absolute dependence of agile methodologies on teaming strategies. Yeah. Right. And how requirements are written and how um, progress on a, a project or a product is is measured. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, so that misconception is, is that, you know, I, I could send my project managers of my organizations to PMP certification and they would come back with all of the skills necessary to run a waterfall project. You know, and they could take PMBOK and they could figure out how to tailor whatever project sure. management processes and, you know, do charters and, you know, track Gantt charts and all those things. And, and, and life was good. It gave the execs that illusion. Exactly. That yeah. control. But, but the reality was is that, and we know this is all those estimates <laughs> are guesses. And, and for some reason, I don't know if this is indicative of all project management, but, but IT project management, maybe it's because, you know, it's kind of so ill understood in a lot of ways. It's just like everything's a point guess. It's like this is how long it's going to take. Um, you know, if nothing else, or it needs to be ranges or Monte Carlo simulations or whatever, right? But but there's something in IT that that leads us to believe that we can put it in a project plan. We have perfect knowledge of the estimates. We have perfect understanding of who's going to do the work. Um, there's not going to be any dependencies. There's not going to be latency. There's not going to be any disruptions, right? Right. And then somehow this plan's going to go accordingly. And, and that's just obviously not the case. Um, you know, along comes Agile, and it's a different way of managing work. But, but what makes it work isn't the process. It isn't what you're teaching them from school, right? What it is, it's, it's, you know, I have this complete cross-functional team that is aligned to a business problem that has right. everything and everyone necessary to deliver. They have the ability to establish a stable velocity. They have the ability to work off a known backlog. They have the ability to produce a working test and increment and get validation on it. And through doing those things, right, we have a team or a group of teams that can that can establish a steady throughput. Right. And then to the to the point of the organization that's trying to do better planning or better plan driven projects, it's like it's like agile in no way helps you to deliver um, fixed cost, fixed time, fixed scope projects better than waterfall. It, 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 I don't think it right. does. But what it enables you to do is it enables you to make trade-offs as you go mm-hmm. so that you optimize your chances of having a valuable product when you run out of time and money. Yeah. Because inevitably a project's going to run out of time and money. 
and so you have an easier way of coping with change. You have less stress with change. Well, well, it's like change. Change is built into the system. Right. Right. That's what I mean. Like change is change is stressful and expensive in a waterfall project because I spent so much time gathering requirements and I got sign off. I spent so much time right. doing analysis. And you're trying to prevent um, change. Yeah, you're trying to prevent change, right? So you change management boards, all that kind of thing. So agile is fundamentally built for change. And so and so what what we're doing when we're when we're and again, I'm thinking like lower left quadrant in our model. I'm thinking um, a newly transformed organization, lots of dependencies. We haven't dismantled all the governance and, and we're still right. kind of expected to do these 18 month projects for these 18 month roadmaps. Okay. Um, you want to change that over time. But in an early stage transformation, that's a lot of times what we're dealing with. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're we're basically recognizing the physics of project management. And we're saying that, look, if we're going to be in market um, by a certain date, we're going to hit a date and we're mm -hmm. going to stay on budget. We have to be able to vary scope. Yeah. <clears throat> but what you want to do is you want to vary scope in such a way that you take out all everything unnecessary. Right. Focus on absolutely on the minimally viable product, minimally marketable feature, however you want to think about it. And and we're constantly optimizing for minimum viability. Mm -hmm. So when we're when we're ready to deliver, there's something that's shippable. There's something that's valuable. And so I know two things. I know I know how much of the scope I'm going to get through early. So if I'm going to be late, I know it early, which is which is an advantage. It also gives us the ability to front load risk, right? To do the riskiest parts of the project first. So I so I can front load risk much easier. And mm -hmm. so if I'm going to encounter risk, like I know that my project's going to be off earlier, right? I can adjust. And then as I progress through the roadmap, I get a progressively elaborated understanding of where I'm going to be. So I can start telegraphing to the organization, um, is it going to be late? Is it going to be over budget? Um, is, is our reduced scope acceptable? It might be, right? And then if it's not acceptable, like we'll have a pretty good idea of what it's going to take to close the gap and how long. Yeah. You know, another problem with, with traditional more waterfall development is that um, it's not just that we don't know the progress against the known requirements, but we're also because a lot of times we're delaying testing until the end. There's there's the there's the inarguable, you know, we've built 50 percent of the product, mm -hmm. but then there's the um, likelihood that the 50 percent that we've built is doesn't meet like a, a quality definition of done. And so a lot of times, you know, you get that thing in project management where you're like you're 90 percent done, you have 90 percent left to do. Because I might even be on track with the development work, right? right? Writing the lines of code, developing the features, whatever. But if those if those um, lines of code haven't been validated by a customer and haven't been tested for quality, yeah, then, you don't know. then we don't really know where we are, right? And that's what's insidious about it. So, yeah. so you can do Agile to deliver in a plan-driven way, but the entire mental model for how you do it is different. Yeah. And, you know, getting back to kind of the theme of the week, um, again, that's the that's the thing that, that I don't think people fully understand always or respect about agile methodologies. It's like training people on the process like you would with a PMP certification or, yeah. you know, a project management certification is insufficient. Doesn't make right? it. There's yeah. the org design stuff. Right. And then there's the new practices that you have to do. And then, and then furthermore, this is one I, I don't emphasize as much, but I did a talk up in Raleigh uh, at the Triagile Conference earlier this week on how to build a culture of agility. 
And mm-hmm. so when you're, when you're talking about the cultural aspects of it, <clears throat> you have to have like a mindset that says, this is how we inspect and adapt. This is how we make trade-offs. This is how we focus on mentally viable. This is how we, this is how we um, exploit the system to optimize our economic outcomes. Yeah. And, 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 and it, but it requires that, that structure, governance, and metrics, that systems view first. Then, okay. you know, Scrum or Safe or Less or the practices or Kanban that go on top of that. Right. And then once you have like a trusted system of delivery that you can kind of count on, then you can engage the organization and say, okay, here's what we're doing. Right? We're delivering okay. this way. Here's the optionality you have. Here's what we're learning as we go. Yeah. And by virtue of learning and fast feedback, we put the business in a, in a position where it can actually be successful. Okay. Right. So, so it's a it's a different it's a different structure. It's a different set of yeah, systems, yeah, yeah. different set of practice, different mindset. And and again, I just I think people fall into this trap of I can train you on Scrum and everything's going to be fine. So let me I want to kind of kick off of what, something you just said and ask you about okay. another thing that happened to me this week in class, and and it's a okay. misconception at the team level, not the management okay. level. Okay. I'm teaching a bunch of people, and they're in a situation where. Um, there's not clarity on how senior leadership is prioritizing things across the organization. It's put down onto the backs of the product owners who are just supposed to know, but the product owners report to different leaders who are all chasing different things and incentivize different ways. Yeah. And rather than creating clarity for the POs, they're just like, this is your problem. Figure it out. Like mom and dad don't get along. You figure out how to, um, yeah, and I'm classic. like, you can't, <laughs> you, there's nothing you can do except go back to them and tell us like, this is what matters. If they won't yeah. tell you, you're screwed. Yeah. But they well, thought Agile the would I, fix it. That was let me hope. tell you the way I kind of conceptualize this. And, and, um, and again, I think this isn't a blog I wrote earlier this week, last week, something like that. And, and this isn't a true story. This is Mike's like mental model of how some Mike of this land. stuff can be like, yeah, like I just envision like Jeff Sutherland, um, Ken Schwaber, Mike Beadle sitting down, sitting at Patient Keeper, like doing whatever they're doing, right? Yeah. And and they're kind of conceptualizing this team-based way of working. Mm-hmm. And and the way that I look at the way that I look at an agile team, agile teams like a like a service, like an encapsulated service, you might move like mm-hmm. into like the cloud or something if it was a system metaphor. And and it's like the product owner is like the API from the business, the rest of the organization into that team. Okay. And, and and again, I have zero idea if these conversations actually happen, but I envision them at some point saying, hey, look, like this team's getting yanked around all over the place. Yeah. Um, the organization's in chaos, like can't decide what it wants to do. Priorities are all over the place. So what we're going to do is we're going to take you, Dave, and we're going to yeah. call you the product owner. And okay. it's your job to go figure all this mess out. <laughs> Okay. Yay for and me. The interface, and the interface to the team yeah. is the backlog, right? So you bring the backlog. The team sits down every two weeks and says, okay, how much of this can we do? What does it look like? How are we going to build it? Team gets left alone to do their work for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And they're responsible for producing that working tested increment, right? Yeah. Validated by the product owner. Um, hopefully have stable velocity over time. All right. So that's kind of how I envision the creation story of Scrum. Right? Okay. So now you take that into a real organization and the person that we've made to be the product owner isn't really a product owner. They're like a business analyst, right? Mm-hmm. So they're kind of like the product owner in name only because they're the ones that write the requirements, just like a business analyst always has. Yeah. 
But that business analyst reports to a product manager and the product manager reports to a product line manager and they report to a division president. And then right. there's, um, you know, maybe they're part of a shared services organization or like a platform organization. And they've got like multiple constituencies that are moving all over the place. And yeah. you're pulling leaders with all kinds of different priorities. Right. And that product owner is the interface of that team is, I think, by definition in Scrum, the one that is responsible for working that stuff out. Mm-hmm. But in practice, right, they don't have the positional authority, nor the leverage, right. nor the influence, nor anything to actually make those decisions. Right. So they're in. So they're kind of trapped. Right. Yeah. And so and so like so I'll go with something a little bit more mainstream. So like safe, like what safe is kind of saying, it's just like, OK, you got all these different teams. And what we're going to do is we're going to bring them into like a um, like a program level, like a middle tier mm-hmm. where we're doing release planning, release trains and all these different things. And they're going to be subordinate to a portfolio. And that portfolio is where the master prioritization is going to happen. And that portfolio is going to be um, tied up to an investment tier where we're measuring KPIs, OKRs and such. Mm-hmm. Right. So at any point in time, if there's contention at the team level, that gets worked out as we're doing the release plan. And then that 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 is subordinate to the portfolio, which is support subordinate to the organizational objectives. Okay. So what you're highlighting is that there is a there is a structural misalignment between what we're trying to do at the team level execution Mm -hmm. and the way the rest of the business is being orchestrated and managed. Okay. Okay. And so what you find is you, you, in that such in that situation, you're, you're, you're very much like in an impossible game, right? It's just like what we talked about. Like, how do you do scrum without product owners? Well, you don't, yeah. right? You can do something that looks like scrum, right? Um, but scrum yeah. by definition has a product owner, a scrum master, it has a team meets on these cadences. It does these artifacts, like whatever that's scrum. Yeah. So if you don't have a product owner, you're not doing scrum. You might do something that's agile. You might do something that's incremental and iterative. You might do something that's continuous flow, but you're probably not doing scrum. Okay. And so what, what we what we'll typically do, and there was a pattern that that I identified that I started writing about probably 15 or 16 years ago. I called it the product owner team pattern. And, and, and it's held up very well in lots of different incarnations as we've gone through and done transformation. So the first problem with the product owner is that most product owners do not have sufficient domain expertise to really break down a backlog. Mm-hmm. It's like the first thing. And so, and so more often than not, I'm taking a product owner and I'm partnering them with um, somebody who is product management, somebody who has like senior level technical expertise. Um, a lot of times I'll say like an architect. Um, or, and somebody with like more like a project schedule, how am I managing and interfacing with the rest of the organization point of view? So I'd say like an analyst tester view, a architect view, a product management view, and a project management view. And those aren't people, they're not roles. It's just views, right? Sometimes it can be one or two people. Sometimes it can be eight people depending on, right? And so generally this is how I think about it. I got multiple scrum teams and I've got this product owner team that is basically, um, doing decomposition and look ahead, right? So in our world, like I have scrum teams at the lowest level. I have these product owner teams that are working through um, an analysis to design, build, test, deploy, Kanban board, right? Mm-hmm. Running features through that board. And they're subordinate to a portfolio, okay. okay? And then that portfolio is really the master prioritization. So if I have contention at the team level that can't get resolved by my product owner team, or yeah. the product owner team is in conflict with a different product owner team, 
then that requirement gets adjudicated at the portfolio level. Okay. But what it's really calling out for me is that that team with the, with the limited capacity that needs to know what the priority is, they now yeah. become a bottleneck in the system. Yep. So, so there was a one team I was coaching probably eight or nine years ago where, um, where this one team was basically they were saying they, they needed clarity on prioritization. Okay. And the reality was is that they were dependent upon other teams mm-hmm. that had other higher priorities. Yep. And and so the team literally, as I recall, was working on like the 18th, 19th, and 20th thing in the in the portfolio. And the teams that they had dependencies on were working on the one, two, and three things in the sure. portfolio. So I told them, as I said, you don't have a prioritization problem, right? You have a dependency and capacity management problem, right? right? And so in order for that team to ever get their dependencies resolved is that they're going to either have to move up higher in the priority list or the teams that they have dependencies on are going to have to increase their capacity to do more work. Okay. Because the unfortunate reality is that that team working on 18, 19, and 20 was in effect creating a ton of waste. Yeah. Because the team that they were dependent on was never going to get Never going to get to them. As soon as they finished one, two, and three, there was a different one, two, or three. And 18, 19, and 20 were never going to become one, two, or three. Yeah. Right. So it starts to change the language. Right. It's not prioritization. It's it's capacitization. It's bottlenecks. It's it's waste elimination. It's it's a different thing. Yeah. So, you know, getting back to this theme of like common misconceptions, like, you know, in all but the simplest organizations, team level scrum is, is wholly insufficient to run an agile enterprise. Right. It just mm-hmm. is. Right. I mean, you could have a thousand scrum teams. You could have everybody in the organization doing scrum. Yeah. But if you don't put the orchestration layers on top of it to do some sort of dependency management, look ahead, you don't put some sort of process in place to deal with that prioritization and get that right. whole stack in the organization in alignment, you're going to continue to have these problems. Right? Yeah. And, so, and so like what we do is we come in and we just tell them the truth, right? Um, I mean, you know, like you've been around, you've been around here for a long time. And Jim, you can't and handle the truth. Well, when yeah. Jim Cundiff was working with us before he <laughs> retired, um, you know, I was really hesitant to do public training or to do any kind of agile mm-hmm. skills training because so often in our marketplace, um, so often in our marketplace, um, you know, people substitute training for transformation. Hey, I want to do agile, so let's get yeah. on how to do agile. And in reality, send one person off to training and we'll beat the whole company. Yeah, so you got, you got, you know, you got the team level and the practices and you got the orchestration layers and you got prioritization, you got metrics, you got tying the KPIs, you've got audit compliance, different um, financial controls and things like that. So to really achieve agility and agility at scale, you have to really create an integrated operating model that takes it all the way from work surface all the way up to strategic intent or from strategic intent all the way down to the work surface. And, you know, to, to safe's credit, right, that's what we talked about last week, safe's credit is attempting to model that. And in the Agile community um, is at war at times with safe, right? There's a lot of people that are all in, of course, right? But then, you know, other half of the community is at war with safe because it doesn't like all the additional roles and responsibilities and overhead. And it's basically saying it's a really busy you know, picture. There's too much well, stuff in there. Well, well, there, well, there is. Right. But but. But, you know, Dean's not stupid, right? I mean, he's engaging with leaders and they're, 
and, and like what, what I said, what I said last week was that, you know, the problem with safe isn't that it has too many roles and responsibilities and ceremonies or what have you. The problem is, is that, is that it's not addressing the needs or the, the conditions in the organization that are yeah. creating the requirement for that. Right. And so yeah. it's trying to be as agile as it can be at scale. But in the presence of complex solutions, architectures, dependencies, all these different things, right. it's like you have to have some sort of orchestration. Yep. Um, you know, you know, we, we posted something up on LinkedIn that was talking. It said, said something. I think the quote was like, um, you know, your ability to be agile is going to be limited by what you're willing to deconstruct and rebuild. Mm-hmm. And and I think in the quote, we talked about safe and less and things like that. And, and somebody um, responded to it and said, you know, I wouldn't include less in this because less um, really makes the, um, the, the assumption that you are descaling the organization. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, I think that's right. And I think that's the right approach. And I, and I think less has it more right than safe does. Um, the challenge is that in early stage transformation, the organization isn't descaled. The right. organization is not dependency free. And, and I think where safe is running into friction in the enterprises, it's basically saying, this is how you do agile at scale. And the reality like one is one size fits all. It's like it's like it's like an approach to do agile at scale in the presence of a lot of organizational dysfunction and dependencies. Mm-hmm. And so that's why people say that, you know, safe is basically just a way to make managers feel like they're agile without actually changing. Anything. <laughs> totally true. <laughs> totally true. But yeah. it can lead to some iterative and incremental delivery. But but if you leave an organization in that state. Yeah. Then you fail to deconstruct and simplify the organization, break dependencies, and and be able to to really achieve a more agile state. But let me tell you one other thing. So I was up in I mentioned I was up in Raleigh at the Triagile Conference on Tuesday, and was doing a talk on how to create a culture of agility. Okay, which is a, a funny thing for me to lead with because like everything is like systems first, then practices and culture. Yeah. But so many people in the Agile community want to talk about culture. So it's like my general bent is if you want to change the culture, change the systems and change the, system, the practices yeah. and then you can change the culture, right? So so that was kind of like my hook in that. But there was a, a friend of mine, a fellow Agile kind of Agilist in the community is from Raleigh. And he said something. He goes, he, he said something to the effect of like, and I want to, I want to paraphr- I'm paraphrasing, but it was like, it's like you can't change the teaming strategies. And I went... Fascinating. Well, 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 that's the thing. So I, I think a lot of the people, and this is, this is the challenge that I think we have um, if we're not talking to people at the right level in an organization. The people that were walking to your CSM classes, they can't change the org design, right? Um, we've talked about this before. It's like yeah. one of the challenges with um, you know, Scrum is it's like, I think the fundamental premise of Scrum is teach people to do Scrum and then they start doing it. The, the impediments will reveal themselves to you. Scrum master goes and removes the impediments and the team carries on and continuously improves over time until your impediments are executives won't prioritize until your impediments are your legacy mainframe is really tightly coupled and can't continuously deploy. (laughs) Yeah. That was another one. All the things necessary to actually do agile by, by the, by, you know, whatever reasonable rules um, aren't in place. And so, and so what happens is that the team focuses on the things that it controls. It, it locally optimizes and then mm-hmm. ends up bastardizing all of the rules of Scrum. And you get questions like, well, how do I do Scrum without a product owner? You yeah. know, right? Is what it comes down to. So, um, 
Yeah, so it's 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 a fascinating thing, right? So it's like these are tough questions, and and often they can't be addressed at the team level execution layer. Yeah. When I'm talking to team level practitioners, what I what I tell them is I say, look, right, if you don't have the influence to make the changes necessary to do agile well, well then you eat it, right? But you understand mm-hmm. which conditions are not met. You put in compensating controls to be as agile as you possibly can. Right. In the presence of that dysfunction. But what you don't want to do, and, and again, I think it's worth say falls short, is you don't want to say, oh, yeah, the dysfunction is okay. Dysfunction is okay. It's normal. We can't change it. Like, whatever. So we're just going to – this is the best we can do. Um, and I think that's where the agile community gets pissed off at, at, at say yeah. It's because it purports to be the way. It's lacking in hope. Fact, a way in the presence of a lot of organizational mess. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, again, fundamentally why is leading agile when I started this company almost 13 years ago now. It's like, I didn't want to be a training company. I didn't want to be a staff on company. Right. I didn't want to put scrum masters and agile coaches into dysfunctional organizations where they don't have the ability to lead change. And, yeah. and a lot of times when, you know, if somebody calls up and says, hey, you know, could I have 10 coaches? I'm like, to do what? Well, I want them to coach my teams. Well, tell me about your teams. Well, functional silos, waterfall, all these different things. We, we want their help. And I'm like, it's not going to work. Like, yeah. You're just not going to get what you want out of it. And it's like, and, and, and we've tried to maintain a position of high enough integrity in the market where like, if I, if my coaches can't help you be agile, like truly agile, like, you know, incremental yeah, yeah. iterative delivery in market, fast feedback, continuous integration, deployment, stable velocity, all these things. It's like, it's just frustrating for everybody. Right. Yeah. Just frustrating. So a lot of what we try to do in our sales cycle is and, you know, through marketing and, you know, podcasts and different things that we do is we try to educate everybody on like, what does it really take to make this successful? And then yeah. at least if you decide to hire coaches or go to training, you know, you're going in really <laughs> you eyes wide knowingly. Open. Yeah. You did it yeah. knowingly. Right. And, and, you know, candidly, you know, we've sold training to people that they're like, I hear you, Mike. I agree with you. I know we're going to stub our toe, but we just want our some toe. basic skills so we can kind of get started yeah. and we want to experience it ourselves. And I go. And that's pretty okay. much where that lady and I left right? today. Yeah. I mean, we'll do it. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's and that's cool, right? People can run their businesses however they want. But what, I, what I've always felt like was low integrity for me was telling somebody if they get trained on Scrum, then then transformation done kind of a thing. Yeah, I and think it's important to do that. But, but, but I also think that there's an element, at least the way I, I look at the training, is I'm planting seeds. And I don't know when they're going to grow. For right? sure. It could be this company For five sure. years from now, For ten sure. years from now. Same thing with the coaching. We're changing the world, but yep. we might not be changing it this minute. You know what I mean? For so, sure, right? And, and still, you know, I, talk still about, got I talk about with integrity our team and mobility, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I talk a lot about with our teams about like things that must be true to be agile. And that's a really strong word coming from your CEO. It must be true. And then they go into an early stage transformation. I'm like, but Mike, these things aren't true. And I'm like, okay, like here's the caveat to they must be true. You must tell the truth. You must tell okay. people what must be true. And then, and then what you would like to do is to get them on a path to make those things true. So, you know, we have a couple of examples where you've gone in and done years of training with people. And then at some point they realize, oh, wow, okay, what Dave's been telling me is spot on. So let's do some transformation work together. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and in that case, like if somebody says, hey, I want to do skills training. I know I'm going to stub my toe. You've told me the truth. Everything's good. And then 
they're not getting the business benefit from it that they want and ask why well teaming strategies and you know governance yeah. models and all these different things and how you handle dependencies and how you handle planning and stuff and and you want to go through that transformation work like all day long on sunday right so like we'll meet people where they are and i'm not saying yeah. that you can't go get scrum trained or safe trained or whatever but when it isn't working like i i go back to this when it's not Twitter it's not enough ago. It's not enough. Well, well, I go back to this thing Schwaber said years ago. It's like 80% of the people that do Scrum aren't going to get the business benefit from it. And then he said mm-hmm. something else kind of in the same time frame. And again, I could be totally making this up, but I attribute it to, <laughs> to Ken. Um, is, is something to the effect of like Scrum's like chess. Like nobody argues whether chess works, right? You either play chess yeah. or you don't. You play chess well, you don't. You have the right board, you have the right pieces, you have you know people that are skilled, knowledgeable. Like there's, to me, it's just inarguable that, that team-based, iterative and incremental delivery using Scrum and XP, it just works. It's inarguable. It's, it's non-debatable at this point. It works everywhere. Um, there's just nothing. But, but some organizations can decide that they don't want to build cross-functional teams or they don't yeah. want to prioritize their work or they don't like – I mean there's a, a thousand things. But it's not the fault of the methodology. It's, it's the failure to create right. conditions for the methodology to work. You know, like I, what I think what I think's interesting industry wide sometimes is that we see like, you know, if, if people are doing scrum and scrum's not working, you know, it's like they want to double down and say, well, you just need to do scrum better. Right. Um, what what what's really at odds, it's not so much you need to do scrum better. It's what what I think they're really saying is don't bastardize scrum for the sake of the organizational dysfunction. You have to take the organizational dysfunction that scrum shows you. And yeah. then you have to go resolve those dysfunctions. Or don't but, bastardize it for your own comfort. But the caveat is, is that the dysfunctions in large organizations are totally out of the purview of the team. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like people will ask me, like when we do a kickoff workshop or we're going through an early stage, we call it define the end state, who needs to be in the room? And, and that changes depending upon the organization and the scale. But what I talk about is like span of control. Like who are okay. the people that can make the decisions to reorganize the, the teams and break the dependencies and to install the governance and to put in the financial controls. Whoever those people are, I want them in the room because mm-hmm. I want them to understand the things that they're going to have to do to enable these teams yeah. to operate they want the way they want the teams to, to operate. And if they're not willing to make now, – now, again, here's the caveat. You don't have to do it all at once. We can do it in a very structured, systematic way. We can make it very economically prioritized and yeah. driven – you know, challenge capitalization and cost structures and all these value structures, value density, all kinds of ways we can justify it. And it doesn't have to happen overnight and it likely won't happen overnight. But, but you have to sit with those leaders and say, if you aren't willing to do this ever for any reason, regardless of how economically justified or how much better, if you're just not right. willing to change these things, you are wasting your money at the team level execution, yeah. um, you know, going down this path. Yeah. You know, if the teams like doing daily standups and like collaborative every couple of week planning, like, cool. Right. I mean, there's a lot of teams and, and I hear it all the time. It's like we're doing scrum really well and we love it. Well, I'm like, why did you call me? Well, because it's not really working. Because we're not delivering. Well, well what, they, what they're saying is that they're doing scrum well. They love the collaboration. They love the teamliness. They love yeah. the visibility. They love the transparency. They, they like all the things that come with scrum. But they're not but getting twice the work. Because of the way they're structured, because of the way their deployment infrastructure works, because of the way they're governed, like they're just not producing anything yeah. of value. 
you know, and so and that's really frustrating. And, and, and as a as an agile enthusiast, as somebody who's been running a transformation company for 13 years, it's like it, it's sad and it's disappointing because <coughs> I feel like it um, kind of tarnishes the brand and people are getting there's yeah. some places we go into where you can't even say agile anymore. Like they, they know it, it works and they want to do it. But like we just can't call it agile because we've had such bad experiences with it. Right. So far, they're doing I just project find that really nimble. unfortunate. Um, that, that, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've actually done stuff like that where it's like, okay, well, like wink, wink, nod, nod. We're doing agile, but um, we just we just have to call it something else right now. So, yeah, yeah. I did a podcast with a friend of mine the other day, Jennifer Tharp. She's the chair of the board of PMI, and we got into a conversation okay. about who are your favorite okay. fictional project managers. Like, who who do you model yourself after? So you could pick Scrum Master, Project Manager, Product Owner, whatever you want. Um, I'll give you her answer. I'll tell you mine, but then I'm curious to hear what yours is. Like something from a movie or a book that like, you like think my brain that's it's like it's like what world do you live in? Where, what world do you live in where you not only know about fictional project <laughs> managers, but you've gone so far as to have a favorite? Like, I've had it. I've always point. had it. So <laughs> I think it'll make sense. It'll make sense. So hers was Pippi Longstock because <clears throat> she can always make good things happen out of wherever she was. But mine, since the beginning, was Radar O'Reilly. Like that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be the guy that knew when the choppers were coming before they got there. They could get anything you wanted, whatever you needed from anywhere. Um, and I just assume that everyone has that. So I'm wondering, <laughs> do you have anything like that? Something from a book or a movie? Where, the other option would be your favorite movie about project management. Those are the two things we talked about that were weird. <laughs> I can't. Oh, I, I, I'm a bad. You should. You should have tipped me <laughs> off on this one. You know, I'll tell you the only thing that comes like like the only thing that I can think about is like is like a character that like drives and gets things. Like I don't think of like a pure play project manager, but like a character that like drives and gets things done and kind of okay. manages the work and deploys the people and stuff like that. And and the the first person that came to mind was Bobby Axelrod from that movie Billions. But like I heard that show Billions, mm -hmm. but like I don't know if he counts as a project manager or not, you know, in that context. But, well he definitely has a lot of resources working for him. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's managing the economics and the portfolios and all the different things. So yeah, so that's my answer, yeah. man. So take it or leave it, you know. Bobby That's Axelrod good. That's good. It. Perfect. So. Thank you. All right. So if you're if you're watching awesome. this, I would love if you would put in the show notes like what your comments are, who your favorite fictional project manager or favorite okay. project management movie too. Um, but Mike, thank you for doing this. Appreciate awesome. it a lot, and we'll awesome. come back with more questions you're about welcome, things we can straighten out for people. All right. Thanks. Thanks.